Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Welcome to the Little Red Podcast. This episode, we're doing something a little different. This week, nine Hong Kongers have been jailed for up to ten months for taking part in last year's Tiananmen vigil, which was deemed an unauthorized assembly. And today, we're reassessing the events of 1989 and their treatment by Western academia. We're looking at new sources and new historical approaches with Jeremy Brown from Simon Fraser University. He's recently published a book called June the Fourth: The Tiananmen Protests and the Beijing Massacre of 1989. Our conversation was recorded live and hosted by Harvard University's Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. I started with a line in Jeremy's book, which quotes the independent researcher Wu Renhua, who believes that June the fourth is more consequential to China's fate than May the fourth. I started by asking Jeremy if he agreed with that view.、Uh, thanks for the question, and、uh, and thanks to Harvard and Fairbanks for organizing this.、Uh, do I agree with that? For him, it's true. I mean, for him and for people whose lives were changed so drastically and unpredictably by what happened in June of 1989, it's it's definitely true. And so,、uh, for a generation, it's true.、Um, for us as China scholars or journalists who study China, it is just such a watershed moment in terms of it affected how and when I went to China. It affects how and when the students I teach here at Simon Fraser University,、uh, which I should acknowledge is on the unceded. Traditional ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwey-Kwetlem peoples,、uh, they wouldn't have come to study here with, without that event pushing China in a new direction. It studied in the in the way they're studying. So, yeah, I mean, May Fourth is more than a hundred years ago.、Uh, I would say it's June Fourth is at least as consequential as May Fourth. But the point that Wu Renhua was making was, where's the June Fourth Center for June Fourth Studies? Where's the book series? Where's the journal articles? It's not here yet, but he thinks that it will be, and he predicts that it will be because it's so important. One of the big differences is that difference in source material, isn't it? I mean, I remember when I started writing my book, I very naively thought, "Oh, you know, there's going to be so much. Academia will have been all over what happened in 1989. There's going to be this massive body of work to draw on." And then when I started looking for it, there was this huge sort of gaping hole in academia. As you point out, some of the best work actually dates back to right after 1989. Timothy Brooks, Quelling the People, and you know when I went online, I checked in Google Scholar.、Uh, I checked May fourth had 27,000 matches. June fourth, like barely 3,000. You know, there's a huge difference in it in the treatment by Western academia. Why do you think that is? Well, part of it's just time. And the way that the field of history, especially the history of the People's Republic, starts to look at things. So, the first draft of the history of the People's Republic, and if we're talking about history of the 1950s and 60s, is written by journalists on the ground, people writing memoirs,、uh, social scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists, did the history of the 50s and 60s, and then 
only recently in the past 20 years has it have historians come along and say and said we're going to look at this as history meaning we're going to look at the archives we're going to do oral history we're going to look at places that those social scientists didn't look at whether it's more bottom-up grassroots whether it's you know minority regions uh, so that's that's been happening in a really exciting way in the field of PRC history since the late 90s and early 2000s and it's really a growing field and now it's just the the, the turn of the 1980s right it's it's t- social scientists started right about 1989 not that many. So there is something different. I think you're right. There is something different. Journalists wrote a lot. People wrote memoirs. And now uh, it, it's been 30 years. Plus, historians need to look at the 1980s using historical methods, doing archival research, doing oral history research, and trying to look at, well, what have people neglected in their previous studies and how can we fill in the gap and maybe tell stories in a different way. But yeah, June 4th is different because it is a forbidden zone, as you show so amazingly in your book. Um, and so... Uh, it's not a safe topic for a graduate student to work on as a history student. Uh, it's not a safe topic to work on if you have family inside China, because we know that that's part of this regime of repress- repression is that family members will be threatened and mobilized to stop you if you're a PRC citizen from doing it. And so um, the people who are doing the research are people who have already lost everything, like Ding Zilin, whose son was shot on June 3rd and killed, um, Lao Yiwu was imprisoned multiple times, and he's put together some amazing interviews. Wu Renhua, you know, had to flee China and has been so obsessed with this that he's self-published three books that are actually the best three books uh, about this topic. And so, and then me, uh, and what am I? I don't have family in China. I'm a tenured professor in Canada where I have these amazing freedoms and protections for academic freedom. So now, uh, if you are a tenured professor outside of China, you can do it. Um, why not? You should, right? It's the 80s. It's history. We have the sources. Um, and in fact, there's an amazing number of sources on this topic. But um, you can't quite do the same type of research that I was doing in China in the 2000s on the rural-urban divide, just going and talking to people openly. Um, because as you found in your research, you got to be real careful to protect your sources, right? And uh, because there's so much fear around this topic, it's actually pretty hard to talk about openly, especially with somebody you've never met before. It did strike me how unorthodox your sources are from an academic perspective, right? These are not people who are sort of cited. You know, you've got Ding Zilin, a Tiananmen mother. You've got Liao Wu, a former political prisoner. You've got Wu Renhua, who's unaffiliated with any institution. And these, these are some of the best sources of information. Um, what does it say about, you know, scholarship that you know, these are the best sources, yet they seem, you know, somewhat unplumbed by Western academia, unused, you know, unexamined. It's troubling that this important moment has has gone unexplored. Um, And I think it is partially just the social scientists were done with it. The historians haven't quite caught up with it. Uh, It's partially fear. And it's partially maybe a bit of bias against these unprofessional historians who are doing really professional, excellent work. And what, I, what I'm able to do or what anybody else is going to be able to do if they want to check my, uh, the threads that I've started to unravel is um, look at the patterns when you put these things together. So Ding Zilin and the Tiananmen mothers, not just Ding Zilin, but all of the, the Tiananmen mothers and then Liao Wu have gone out and found who died, uh, where they died, what they were doing when they died of almost 200 people, which is maybe a tenth of the people who died on the high end and maybe a, a quarter of the people who died on the low end. Uh, but what 
scholars are able to do is just look at that as a source and look at the patterns. And so the patterns that I found were uh, people with cameras who were taking pictures seemed to be at, at risk and got shot and killed. Um, people who went out to help and watch, they were curious. They got shot and killed. Um, people who wanted to go to breakfast or set up their watermelon stand or get medicine for their children, they just didn't know what was going on. They went outside, they got killed. People inside their homes uh, who went out to their window to see what was going on or to close their window because it was too loud got shot and killed. And so um, what these, what, what Ding Zilin and Lao Wu and Wu Renhua are providing is, um, is a huge amount of data that then we can look at as scholars and say, what's the pattern here? What are we seeing and what's new and different? And, and I think that's part of the problem too when we look at 1989 is there's a lot of common sense wisdom about it that isn't necessarily correct or that's quite narrow. Um, just the idea that the student movement is the thing to talk about and look at. And the student movement for me is important, but not central necessarily. There's a much broader, bigger movement in Beijing among citizens, among workers. And then there's a nationwide movement that we have to look at as well. And there's sort of a reproduction of the students' own elitism in the way that scholars have looked at the student movement and discounted all the other things that happened uh, that I think we need to push back against as well. And you did that really consciously, didn't you? You um, you said you were not going to talk about Tank Man, you were not going to talk about uh, the goddess of democracy because these things said more about the Western observers than they do about the movement themselves. I mean, once you start refocusing the movement and looking at it through a wider lens, not just students and the elite, how does that change our understanding of it? Uh, I think it actually reflects a much broader variety of complaints and grievances in China's 1980s than we had thought about before. Because we, us we usually think about it as a student democracy movement where the students are demanding freedom of the press. Um, but when you look at the grievances of people beyond the students, there's a huge amount of personal anger and trauma related to the one-child policy that surprised me, um, that I think predisposed certain participants in the movement to to be really mad at the Communist Party, that they had been violated in a very visceral way uh, by the one-child policy or by the strike hard campaign, which was this arbitrary campaign to arrest and execute people during the 1980s. So there was, it, there's a history, there's sort of the prehistory of the 1980s that helps us to predict who was mad enough to hit the streets and organize. And it's not just about student issues, and it's not just about Hu Yaobang, this general secretary who died and people felt mad about him. It's not just about intellectuals wanting to get paid more. There's, and, and it's about workers as well. So workers are feeling like they're losing a voice in their factories and their union's not working for them. So that's that's another level of it. So just there's, there's tremendous diversity. And outside of Beijing, Muslims are feeling insulted and not listened to. Tibetans had been <laughs> massacred and killed in Tibet in March of 1989, when they were marching to commemorate the 1959 uprising there. So there's ethnic issues. I, it was really striking how people in Beijing, Han people in Beijing, were not making the connection between martial law and Lhasa in March of 1989 to what might happen to them, right? That it just seemed like, oh, that's far away. That's what happens on frontier regions. There might be shots fired. I mean, People's Daily reported in March, shots were fired. We had to shoot because the Tibetans were being bad. That was in People's Daily. Just three months before shots were fired in Beijing, martial law, that pattern seemed like a success to Li Peng and Deng Xiaoping. And so it's not really a surprise that they 
went to martial law in Beijing, but it, it was a huge surprise to people in Beijing because that that doesn't happen to Han people in the capital was their, their wrong assumption. Yeah, that was a really interesting through line that you drew, the way in which the events in Lhasa were not just a forerunner, but actually informed the leadership's response to the protests in Beijing and elsewhere. How much do you think those events inform the way the, the crackdown in Beijing? Well, I hope that some other scholars will come along and really do the research on this. And I hope that we can get more sources about it in the future. But um, what happened in Lhasa was widespread march. The People's Armed Police and public security shot into the crowd. And that led to more people coming out to because they were mad and they wanted to see what was happening. And only after that was martial law declared and the PLA came in from afar. They had to come from Sichuan to get to get in there and from other places in Tibet. And so it wasn't actually the PLA doing the shooting, um, but the PLA was was such a massive force that this the situation had basically um, stabilized. Um, but it was declared a success. This is what happened. And, and the, the word turmoil was used repeatedly by Li Peng in describing the need for martial law and the success of martial law. So when you see turmoil again, and when Deng Xiaoping, who is really the ultimate leader and decider in 1989, says turmoil, turmoil, tur- turmoil, what do you do with turmoil? Well, you go, to what, you go with what worked in Tibet, um, because now turmoil is in the capital. And not just in the capital, but Deng, and Deng Xiaoping and Li Peng were really nervous about rioting in Changsha and Xi'an as well in late April, and they, they were scared that it was going to spread nationwide. Yeah, and the events that happen in Changsha and Xi'an are quite unstudied, aren't they? There's not a lot of research on them, certainly an area that could be looked into in, in a great deal more depth, right? And those we've actually heard of. Uh, it's the ones that, um, that you haven't heard of before. I mean, Changsha, Xi'an, crowds rampaged, looted buildings, set some things on fire, and then that was cited in the April 26th editorial, which basically came from Deng Xiaoping's words. So the whole world... All of China read about Changsha and read about Xi'an on April 26th and in People's Daily. But what they didn't read about was everything else. And so I had these amazing sources that were sort of leaked daily situation reports sent to the, uh, put to, compiled by the Ministry of Public Security from reports sent to them by public security bureaus in the provinces. And, and what you find when you look at all over China is so many provinces had groups of protesters actually breaking into the leadership comp- compounds, busting through the gates and sitting on the desk of the party secretary and breaking windows and throwing chairs. Uh, so many places in the provinces had hunger strikes in sympathy with the hunger strikers in Beijing. So it really does give you a sense of, you can imagine the leadership in Beijing reading this and saying, this is out of control. And so you can start to start to understand the stress that the leadership was under as well. I mean, you know, you talk about those new sources. Coming back to the idea of source material, I think that's one thing that you seem to hear quite a lot. Oh, there's nothing new to say. There's no new sources about June the 4th. You can't get anything. But I think your work shows that's really not true at all. In collections in libraries, there's quite a lot of new documents. But aside from that, the other thing that you used that I was also using were these new memoirs that, that have come out by, you know, Li Pang and Chen Xitong, people like that. Uh, Li Pang, of course, was Premier, Chen Xitong was Beijing mayor. And one of my problems was knowing how credible, you know, how to judge the credibility of these 
these kind of leaked diaries, particularly diaries like Chen Xitong's, which seem to have been kind of rewritten afterwards to <laughs> try and remove his responsibility as far as possible, you know, in particular saying, oh, you know, when I gave this report uh, to the standing committee, you know, I couldn't even change a single piece of punctuation. I just stood up and read it. So he totally painted himself as a puppet. And, you know, when you look at the this kind of material, I guess, you know, you have questions about, do we know that this was written by Chen Xitong? You know, how credible is it? How much of a sort of rewrite of history is it? How did you sort of navigate those, those kind of questions? Well, I do social history more than the history of elite politics. So this was a real challenge for me to look at the memoirs of Chen Xitong, the Li Peng diary, the leaked recordings of Zhao Ziyang, and try to put them together and try to understand what new they were telling us. So I relied a lot on, there's a political scientist in uh, in Taipei named uh, Zhong Yanlin, um, who's written about these and used them and says that, yes, we can trust the Li Peng and the Zhao Ziyang diaries. Chen Xitong's is the most sort of pathetic one of all, as you, as you mentioned. I mean, Chen Xitong was mayor of Beijing. And if you look at all the other sources, it actually becomes pretty clear that he wasn't doing a whole lot. So... His account seems credible when we put it together together with all the other sources. He was pretty impotent, pretty frustrated. He issued a bunch of orders to the Beijing police to have them stop the marchers. It didn't work at all. He was humiliated. So he was kind of a minor player trying to persuade Li Peng and others uh, to have a harsh crackdown. Uh, so he wanted things to stop, and he wanted there to be a crackdown, but he was not even close to the ear of Deng Xiaoping. I mean, Deng Xiaoping probably barely even knew who the guy was at the time. So Chen Xitong's memoir is the least useful of all, but Li Peng and Zhao Ziyang's are, are so, such golden sources because you put them together, and they loathe each other. They really have a hard time working together, and so they're talking about each other every day and, and insulting each other or just talking about their frustrations with each other. And so you put those things together and we know what they were doing and what they were talking about because they both are coming at it from a different angle. And if you look at Zhong Yanlin, uh, Joseph Terigian, Julian Gewertz, these are all scholars who know elite politics and who are using them and and who, who deem them credible enough to use with the caveat that they're incredibly self-serving. And, you know, Li Peng's, is, Li Peng's diary is meant to show that it wasn't his fault. It was all Deng Xiaoping. Um, which is actually pretty convincing to me uh, that, yeah, Li Peng was trying to do a lot of maneuvering, but he was also not super competent and he was kind of clueless about what to do. So he was happy to say things to, to Deng Xiaoping and then have Deng Xiaoping be decisive because then Li Peng could take that and run with it in a way that he felt supported by. Um, and Zhao Ziyang uh, comes across as a fairly wishy-washy, ineffective politician, as sort of smart as he was, uh, but he was in such an impossible position as the general secretary, top leader, who wasn't the real leader. Um, and so he kind of felt ob obligated to ask Deng Xiaoping. He had a hard time getting meetings with Deng Xiaoping. And he could tell Li Peng what to do, but he had a hard time being clear about that as well. So you put those sources together, and they're great. They're great. And so it's a, it was a great exercise for students of history to you know, read what Li Peng said on this day, read what Zhao Ziyang said on this day. What do we make of it when we put them together? I guess we should also talk about the sources that you didn't use, in particular the Tiananmen Papers. I found it difficult to judge how to treat that because even at the time of its publication, there were 
There was a long discussion in the China Quarterly where Alfred P. Chan raised lots of doubts about it. But when I started asking around, you know, it's, it's still used as a teaching resource in a lot of institutions around the world, but you chose not to use it at all. Talk me through how you made that decision and why. Well, I've taught a seminar about Tiananmen Square four times at Simon Fraser University. You came to visit us once to talk about your book. And the first couple of times I did assign that book because it takes us through a narrative of elite political decision making. It's pretty good for that. But a lot of the reports from the provinces and sort of the daily situation reports about what's going on in Beijing, those are coming from those Ministry of Public Security reports that I want to just look at the originals uh, that I was able to get elsewhere. And so it's reprinting a lot of things. And what's original about it are just a couple of sort of word for word verbatim minutes of conversations, of meetings, sort of, or even private conversations between Deng Xiaoping and Yang Shangkun, who was another elder, elderly leader. And it's just impossible to verify. It seems a bit implausible that those conversations would have been recorded word for word if they were indeed private conversations. Or if they had been, how would they get out in the form that they, how would they get out of China in the form that they got out of China? So it's important to read them to see what this particular source is claiming. But we know from other sources that, yes, a meeting or a conversation did happen on this day. And then we know what happened afterwards. So I'd rather just look at what we do know and put aside the somewhat dubious or implausible word-for-word -word conversations that are the really the only unique thing about Tiananmen Papers. Now that we have so many other things, um, I don't think we need it. And now that we're getting the story of elite politics from the diary and the memoir, first of all, I don't think we need to go to Tiananmen Papers for the elite politics. And, and we also have this new book, The Last Secret, that came out in Hong Kong recently. And also just... I'm a little bit tired of looking at, A, the student movement, and B, elite politics as the center of our story. So that's why I think it's just, we can put aside Tiananmen Papers and look at other new stuff. Workers, ethnic minorities, stuff outside of Beijing, who died, where they were when they died. Tiananmen Papers offers nothing really about those things, and that's where I think I want to shift attention to. And the other um, really new documents that you had were the purge documents illustrating how the purge after the crackdown happened and how different it was in different work units. I mean, when, how did you find the documents like that? And, and how, you know, what, what can we learn from them? Yeah, so if you are a historian or if you're a PhD at a university and you read my book, that part of the book is going to be the most fresh and interesting to you because it is sort of classic history re research using archival documents and some interviews to talk about this thing that I call the purge. And I don't know what else we're supposed to call it in English. In Chinese, it's called the, the double ching, the qingli qingcha gongzuo. So clearing and sorting out work. And it's not called the yundong. It's not called the movement. It's called, it's called gongzuo. And, and what it means is everybody who marched in a protest march or who went to a sit-in or who carried banners around or who gave money to the students to donate to them to eat food or to, to buy some tents. Uh, everybody who participated in any way was required to confess and report on their mistaken understanding. And there are standardized forms for this. And I was able to see some of these standardized forms at the East Asian Library at Stanford University has one file from one work unit. So you get to see the work unit level files and at least see what the forms look like, because the, the contents of the forms are really 
bizarre. I mean, you have the same person with the same handwriting filling out forms for multiple people because their bosses don't want to fill it out. You have just constant repetition. Um, and but, but the policy level documents are indeed held in libraries outside of China that have been leaked since then. And they're really interesting because it's not only everybody has to confess, but every party member in China at the provincial level, at the central level, and in, in urban Beijing has to re-register their party membership as part of this purge to re-pledge their loyalty. And you're not allowed to request to leave the party during this process, and you're not allowed to not re-register. If you request to leave, you will be expelled. So it's this really, there's really weird set of rules, and um, most people just go through the motions or lie about what they did, and uh, only a few people actually stand up and say, it was wrong. Mao said, don't use the army against the people. So there are, but these are sort of elder, elderly party members who were so horrified by the massacre and felt like they didn't have anything to lose that they just said, I quit, um, basically. But we do have some of those voices as well in that chapter. And one of the really interesting comments was this line from the lawyer, um, Puta Chiang, who said, that, you know, the purge wasn't really about loyalty, but more about making people bow down to the post-massacre reality, that it's a culture of debasement by forcing people to say things that are untrue. I mean, how, how, did you see that in the papers that you were looking at? Definitely. Puter Chiang is one of the people who refused to do that. Um, but most people just said, uh, yeah. I marched, but that's just because everybody else was marching. Or I, did, uh, I didn't do what I wasn't supposed to do. All these weird circumlocutions. Um, but people know the cost of standing up, and so very few people will stand up. But the party still wants people to go through this exercise just to remind them who's in charge and remind them that this happened. It was, it was correct. Remember that it's correct. And that has sort of colored the entire period since then, is that you say what's safe to say, you say what you're supposed to say, what you might actually think and say in private to your family and friends. It, it's, it really does mark this turning point in Chinese history where lying to protect yourself or saying nothing to protect yourself or saying certain things in the privacy of your own home versus what you say in public or at your workplace are different, right? That purge represents this moment of you're forced to submit in public to an order that was imposed violently by an army that came and shot the people. And you're not allowed to say that was wrong. Or in fact, you're not really allowed to talk about it at all. You have to make this deal. And that's the deal that still continues through 2021. That was probably the most startling sentence of your book for me when you wrote a purge that continued into the next year and persists to this day. Talk about how you see the purge is continuing to this day. Well, at a very literal level, people like Pu Jiqiang or who want to protect the memory and preserve the memory and commemorate the protest movement, the hope that it represented, the tragedy of the massacre, they are monitored, surveilled, and taken on forced vacation outside of Beijing every year in June because the authorities are afraid they're going to threaten stability and make trouble. And it's not just activists, it's survivors and the relatives of victims. Imagine this, your teenage son gets killed and the government's response is to treat you like an enemy and treat you like a political prisoner because 
you had the misfortune to have your son killed, right? So every year that's still happening. So literally the purge still continues, but much more broadly speaking, that deal of you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about what you really think unless you're really in close company with people that you trust. There's a performance of debasement and subjection that has become sort of naturalized and normalized ever since then. And that's one level. The other level is the winners of the purge. There were people who in certain work units, stood up and said, I knew all along that the student movement was bad. I knew all along that it was a plot. I knew all along that Zhao Ziyang was trying to split the party and all of you were wrong and you're going to be punished. And those are the people that get promoted afterwards. And it goes all the way up to Jiang Zemin. Jiang Zemin, the new general secretary, after Zhao Ziyang is, is taken down, Jiang Zemin gets his position because of this basically unconstitutional, illegal purge of Zhao Ziyang. He gets his job from that. That's how he's general secretary. And every general secretary since that point got their job because of that moment. So the purge is something that ever that the top leadership and their their patronage networks and their underlings are are forced to continue doing because it actually is in their self-interest to maintain their positions. And they got their positions because of June 4th, all the way up to this day. So how much do you think that purge has actually extends into Western universities? I mean, I'm just thinking back to this conference that I went to, a European conference, where a very well-known European scholar of China, a professor at a European university, stood up in front of a room full of people and he said, Tiananmen no longer matters except as an individual memory of personal suffering. He said, because I made notes at the time, I was so astonished, he said, it has no political significance. Is that a sign that, that this purge is sort of, you know, even in Western academia, if you look at the lack of sources, the lack of scholarship, the way in which this subject is kind of radioactive, has it also become part of the purged? Yeah, I mean, that's a provocative statement, but I, I think you're right. It's gotten more intense over the past... It's since Xi Jinping came to power, so over the past nine to ten years, I couldn't have done the research that I did in Beijing and in other parts in China, of China now that I was able to do at the sort of immediate pre-Xi Jinping and very early Xi Jinping era. Um, I waltzed into the Central Library in Beijing and asked for everything they had, and they photocopied it for me and gave it to me without batting an eye. And that was, I think, 2012, summer 2012. Um, so something is changing in China and I'm not sure about outside of China. I think part of it is what's changing in China is just those private conversations that I could have in China. I didn't have many. I had many more outside of China. But those private conversations that I could have in China and that you were able to have with your book are now almost impossible to have safely. And so if you are a Western academic who wants to do research on this, you can't really go to China and do it. So yeah, the purge extends to us um, in terms of you know, one, will you get a visa? Two, if you do, how can you talk to people safely? You really can't. So that's that's a sad truth. But just in terms of the topic being purged as a legitimate topic of academic research, that's quite troubling, right? That's quite quite troubling. And, and I don't know, since I am an academic and I'm a liberal academic, right? I mean, I'm sort of a progressive liberal academic who likes to think about open inquiry and making progress on a topic, gathering as much as we can and learning as much as we can about it, uh, that's, that's quite troubling. I mean, what do you make of it? 
I just remember sitting there at that conference and being quite astounded that anyone would say such a thing in front of a room full of people and not really be challenged that much. To me, it was a sign that, you know, there are these areas that are still taboo, even in, in Western academia. But I guess the thing that worries me now is looking at events in Hong Kong and worrying whether that taboo, that silence, the spread of it, how far is it going to go? I mean, we've seen in the last few weeks, seven organizers of the alliance that organized the vigil in Hong Kong being detained, three of them for incitement to subvert state power. You know, it's clear that the vigil absolutely will no longer be allowed. But even seeing um, the police raiding the Tiananmen Museum in Hong Kong was a really, for me, it was a really quite a heartbreaking moment. Because, for example, I know among the exhibits they have there is uh, so I read about Zhang Xianling, who's one of the Tiananmen mothers, who co-founded the Tiananmen mothers with Ding Zilin. And uh, the helmet, the motorcycle helmet that her son was wearing when he was killed, that's in the museum. And I knew this whole backstory that there'd been this disagreement between the Tiananmen mothers, whether or not to donate it outside China to this museum in Hong Kong. And that Zhang Xianling had wanted to send it there because she thought it would be safe there. She thought that, you know, that would be preserved. And now all of these things have been confiscated as evidence. You know, will they be destroyed? You know, we're seeing, you know, that purge seemingly spreading in all kinds of ways, which, you know, 32 years after the fact are just sort of quite astonishing. I mean, what do you think about when you see what's happening in Hong Kong? Well, I couldn't have written a book without Hong Kong having been a separate system, separate from the mainland, um, in terms of the number of all, almost all the books that I'm talking to you about that were published in Chinese, I bought in bookstores in Hong Kong when I went there. And so many of, of the sort of ephemera or newsletters um, from the student movement and from the workers' movement um, were held at the university service center at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, which got shut down just last year. And amid promises of, yeah, we'll preserve the collection, we want to maintain access. But of course, under the pandemic, nobody knows whether you can still get access. Um, and then it's just so, yeah, Hong Kong, we have to consider it now, at least as a memory repository for June 4th and as a place of research on June 4th. We have to consider it basically, it's the same as a mainland Chinese city like Beijing and, and Shanghai. So I was able to do some stuff in Beijing back then. Um, and so maybe Hong Kong right now is like Beijing 2012 uh, and not Beijing 2021. So there may be still a level of conversation that you can have. The universities are still home to uh, great scholars and you know, Hong Kong universities, great scholars committed to academic freedom working under a very difficult situation. Um, and so, yeah, it's really sad because Hong Kong is looking increasingly like a mainland Chinese city where if you talk about June 4th, if you commemorate June 4th, if you organize around June 4th, if you publish on June 4th, you'll be subject to legal consequences. And that's that's truly sad. So now Harvard, Yanjing Library Archive, Harvard, Fairbank, Fung Center uh, Library, those are our repositories now. For And there's a ton of great stuff. UCLA, East Asian Library, Stanford East Asian Library. So it's sad that Hong Kong is going that direction. 
And there's so then the question is, well, where can that helmet go next? Where can Wang Nan's helmet go next? Uh, can we get some of those materials out to places where they can still be safely preserved? Now, I would even argue that Hong Kong today is more dangerous than Beijing because the lines are so unclear. The red mm. lines, you know, they're everywhere. Is you know, it's a sea of red lines, and it's not really clear what is permitted and what isn't permitted. And the cost of violating the national security law, which is so ill-defined, is so incredibly high that, you know, the, the risks are just almost impossible to quantify. I was talking to Jeremy Brown from Simon Fraser University, and we were hosted by the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard. Our thanks to Awanab Ghosh, Michael Sherney, James Evans and Mark Grady for organising this event. This episode was edited by Andy Hazel. The dulcet tone Graham Smith will be back next episode. Bye for now. Hold up. 